During the last couple of weeks, I have heard and read about the death of a couple of troubled people in the arts world. One of them I followed off and on for a while, but there was a young woman, an Asian singer named Coco Lee, who was 49 years old, who committed suicide. She was very talented and gifted and had a, um, by all outward appearances, a successful music career, but she was dealing with health issues, uh, a bone issue from her childhood that was not fixed when she was young, that she had re-injured and had a surgery for recently and then found out she had breast cancer and was fighting depression. And in all of her life, she um, was struggling and she decided that the route through the struggle, through the darkness, was to take her own life. Another singer, Sinead O'Connor, um, troubled throughout her entire life, um, just rebellion after rebellion after rebellion that brought bad fruit after bad fruit after bad fruit. Very talented singer. We don't know whether what the circumstances of her death were, but she had committed, tried to commit suicide earlier in her life. Her 17-year-old son had committed suicide just last year or the year before. And she had struggled with that, threatened to commit suicide after that. She was dealing with many, many health issues. She was married through her life four times, and she has four children, and none of those children are by the, the men she was married to. And not one of her marriages lasts more than a couple of years. In fact, one lasted seven days. At every turn in her life, she met the distress of her life with more rebellion, and it brought that fruit. And more rebellion, and it brought that fruit. And now she is, from whatever reasons, dead before she reaches the age of 60. What causes people to go through difficulties and struggles and trials and act in that way? And then what causes people to go through difficulties and struggles and trials and act in another way? I think of Adoniram Judson, the missionary to Burma who went to Burma in one of the, one of the first missionaries to, to go out from the United States, from the missionary societies, left the shores of the United States as a congregationalist who baptized children and stepped on the other shore when he got there as a Baptist who believed that baptism by believer, by immersion for believers was correct. And on his, in his ministry in Burma, what we now know as Myanmar, he suffered the loss of three wives who all died on the, on the field. Thirteen children, and five of them passed away, two of them with stillbirth. One of them on the same day they were born. One of them after just a couple of years, another after just a few months. Just tragedy after tragedy on the mission field. During, while the time he was on the mission field, he translated the scriptures, he learned the language, the Burmese language, translated the scriptures into that language, and then developed a dictionary for that language so the people could have the word in their own, um, in their own language, the years and years of effort that that was. Many more times of suffering that I could tell you. And finally, he is on a boat headed back to the United States because he's sick and he dies um, on that voyage. And the crew there say prayers over him and launch his coffin out into um, the ocean. His third wife died just a few, day, a few weeks after that, not knowing that he had passed at that point. Just constant tragedy. And yet now there's a church in Burma, and he never gave up on his mission he continued to work and to serve for the glory of God so that this people group could know Jesus Christ. And when he died, there's different estimates of, of how far the word had gone. I think it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, a, of a thousand um, believers in a few hundred churches. But now there are hundreds of thousands of believers and thousands of churches um, that are there because of his faithfulness. And he was faithful until the end what is the difference? What is the difference in that? Well, I think we know innately what that difference is. Their confidence is placed in a different place. And one, their confidence is placed in themselves. And if their own actions don't bring them a reward that satisfies them, then they have to pursue that in a different way. And oftentimes that leads to even more destruction and more depression and more feeling like life is vanity because it is for them. And the other way 
No matter what goes on in this life, it's preparation for the next life. No matter what happens in this life, we are waiting for God to glorify himself through us and our justice is in him and our reward, our our recompense is in him and comes from him and it sustains us because it's not about us. Now the challenge for us is to sit back and say, where do I fit into that? Because everyone in this room may not fit into the realm of a Shanid O'Connor. And maybe you don't fit into the realm of the faithfulness of Adoniram Judson. You can't even imagine the death of dozens of family members, extended family members on your time on the mission field, three wives, eight of your 13 children, 17 years in prison during the time that you're there, You can't imagine being faithful, but you're glad that God made him faithful through that. Where do we stand? Are we ready to face the challenges of either one or either one of those three people and do so to the glory of God? Our scripture before us gives us great encouragement because of what God intended to do in Christ and the God-man Jesus Christ As he walked on this earth, the way he walked through troubles, the way he walked through disappointments, the way he walked through troubled hearts. And if our Lord experienced that and walked through it one way, then that should be our motivation to learn from today. Now, we are in a time in our world, in our life, that um, it's, it's a rather prophetic time for the church. It's a time for the church to stand And we know from history, the more we stand, the taller we stand, the more we stand on the word of God and what God has promised in that word, the more we open ourselves up to attack. And the more we open ourselves up to attack in a dark and sinful world that is in rebellion against God, the more we may face challenges that we have never even thought that we would face. Or maybe those of us of a certain age may think our grandkids might face. Well, that could be tomorrow for us because of the world in which we live in. But God never changes His word never changes. The church will not be overcome. And we have the same mission that Jesus gave his disciples. And if God doesn't change, and evil doesn't change, and God's plan to overcome evil doesn't change, then no matter what situation we find ourselves, we need to be strengthened. And to be honest, the church today can be rather weak, can't it? That's been proven to us in COVID, did it not? There were many local bodies, local congregations that proved themselves to be weak rather than strong, dependent upon things other than the one true word of God with not much spiritual spine behind them. That will just continue. Are we ready? Are we ready to face such discouragement in our ministry that we wonder whether it's all in vain and to be able to stand firmly on the word of God and believe firmly in the promises that he's given Isaiah wants us to be that today. Turn to Isaiah 49. We're coming into this next section of Isaiah. We've been going through these breakdowns the last several weeks. I won't spend a lot of time this morning to do that. But remember that 40 through 48 is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily chapters 40 through 48 are focused on the physical captivity captivity of God's people in Babylon and the promise to send a human deliverer to set them free. But we end chapter 48 with the words, there is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. So the physical captivity might have been released. The gates might have been opened physically, but spiritually there was still bondage. Chapter 49 through 55 will help us see what God intends to do about the spiritual bondage to sin that they are in. We have seen one servant song already in Isaiah 42, and we saw the, the idea of justice brought forward in that servant song quite a bit. Now we come to the second of four servant songs in chapter 49. There is difference of opinion on whether the servant song ends at verse 6 or whether it ends at verse 7 or whether it ends at verse 13. We're going to say it ends in verse 13, or I'm going to say it ends in verse 13, and you can join me in that. Um, We'll cover half of it today and half of it next week. But the, the purpose for us today is to hear 
what God says through Isaiah, what Jesus says through Isaiah, and have it not only be for them in their time or in the first century and place it all around the ministry of Jesus, but to make sure that we tie that to us in our time, in our struggles, and what we are dealing with and see the encouragement that it brings. Well, stand, if you will, and allow me to read the first, I'll read the first seven verses in the first six verses, we have Yahweh, um, the, the servant, spoken. He is speaking, and he's speaking about himself and about Yahweh. Starting in verse 7 is a, a move to Yahweh himself speaking, and then a second speech by Yahweh, starting in verse 8. We may or may not get all the way through verse 7 today. We'll see how we are at the end, not on time, but just on how the sermon uh, works itself out here. So we'll read through the first seven verses as we begin. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, and whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with Yahweh and my recompense with my God. And now, Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So verses 1 through 13, I've just divided up in the speakers. There, there are, uh, in this second servant song, we are shown two speeches describing the mission of Yahweh's servant. We are shown two speeches describing the mission of Yahweh's servant. And you can see clearly that in verse 7, we move from the servant speaking to Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh. But the description in the first three or four verses in verse 7 are still the servant describing Yahweh, especially as he is related to himself, the servant. And then we see his words begin with the king shall see statement in verse 7. So the first speech that we see, the servant speaks to the ends of the earth. In verses 1 through 3, Yahweh called me to be true Israel. Look at your text in verse 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. So we have seen in in Isaiah that this listen to me is something that is used only when God speaks. That's the only time when when divinity, deity speaks, seven different times it's used, all of Yahweh. So automatically when we see, listen to me, our ears perk up that we might be hearing from God himself. Now there's much debate on who Israel is in these verses. There are some commentators that say we're still talking about the nation of Israel. There are some commentators who say we're talking about Cyrus still. There are some um, commentators that would say that we're talking about Isaiah. But I think the text clearly shows us both from the beginning words, listen to me, and the mission 
that this is the divine servant, the messianic servant, the one that we already heard mentioned earlier in the verse, earlier in Isaiah, referenced in in chapters like chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 11 that we saw in chapter 42 that we've seen hints of throughout, and now we're moving into the sections that just even drip more conspicuously with the nature and the mission of the messianic servant of Isaiah, who is Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to spend time defending that. I'll let the text do itself, that this is the servant speaking, the messianic servant introduced clearly in chapter 42, and that will be the subject of the third and fourth servant songs um, as we move through the end of chapter 53. So listen to me, and who is he speaking to? Oh, coastlands. And he also says, give attention. Let's not pass over that. Can you listen to somebody without actually hearing what they're saying? You can't, right? You can hear the words and they can go in one ear and out the other and you don't hear a word that they're saying. You hear the words, but their meaning doesn't grasp you. Well, when the Bible says to listen, the Bible doesn't have any room for that. The Bible says, when the Bible tells us to listen, it means listen and process and obey. That listening equals obeying. And you see that here as well. Give attention. Don't, don't just make this a light thing. Give attention to the words. And he's speaking to the coastlands and the peoples from afar. The island peoples. And we've seen throughout Isaiah that that is that code word in Isaiah for the ends of the earth. So we, our sight is set not just on God's people known as Israel or Judah or Jerusalem, not just God's people, but to the ends of the earth because that's who he's speaking to. It's not, it doesn't mean that that's all the topic is going to be, but he's speaking to everyone. This is a message to the world. And what's the message? The third line of verse 49, Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Now, if we're thinking about who is speaking here, are, we're immediately, especially as Old Testament saints, as those who are listening to Isaiah's words, either in the, in the early 7th century or in the 6th century, right before they're released from captivity, we're wondering, now wait a minute, if this is, if listen to me tells me that I should be listening, that this is probably God's words, then how do we have this language of being called from the womb and from the body of my mother he named my name? Well, we know from reading back into the Old Testament, not reading back in, but reading the Old Testament through the eyes of the new, that this is exactly how this suffering servant comes, isn't it? This is exactly how the Messiah comes. Comes born of a virgin. Comes in a way that's not expected. Comes in the womb of a woman because this Messiah, this suffering servant, this servant talked about here in chapter 49, is the one who comes as the incarnate God-man, the one who is fully God and fully man. So Our minds and our eyes are thinking the servant, the one called by God, as he is revealed in the world as one born of a virgin. We've already had that told to us in chapter 7, 14, haven't we? In chapter 7, in verse 14, if you've you've forgotten about that, about the prophecy that started that early um, in Isaiah... There's a situation in Isaiah chapter 7 where the king refuses to, God says, you name for yourself a sign. And the king refuses, Ahaz refuses to to do the sign. He's in that that pseudo-spirituality of, oh, I wouldn't tempt the Lord my God. And in verse 14, Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I'm not going to go through and preach that sermon again. That had, a, that had a, uh, an 8th century fulfillment, an 8th century nod. But we also know that, that that language, his name Emmanuel, is picked up in the Gospels, that Jesus is, given, is called Emmanuel, God with us. So he's, he's given this, pro, this prophecy about him and Isaiah fulfilled in the New Testament as this suffering servant enters into history as the incarnate God-man. And that's what's in our mind. He called me from the womb. Now, notice what this, he called me from the womb. So there's a purpose here, right? This is intentional. This is Yahweh giving this servant a mission, and he gave that servant a mission from the very beginning, from the womb. 
And this language is used for other, for other people that are not Jesus himself, isn't it? Jeremiah talks about himself being called from the womb in the first chapter in verse 5. We know that, that God has known us and formed us in our mother's womb from Psalm 139. Uh, many verses in that, but like Psalm 139, 13. This is um, Galatians 1.15. Paul says that he, his mission was, was given to him from his womb. So this is common language for calling. And this is what Isaiah tells us, that this servant is called by God. So there is a specific purpose that he is given from the very beginning. From the body of my mother, he named my name. That means he caused it to be remembered. He, he, he made known by name, my name. So we see already the, the father working through the son, Yahweh working through the servant with intentionality, with purpose. Verse two, he made, me, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. I'll skip a line. He made me a polished arrow. Now we have, we have this parallelism here, right? We have to determine whether we're saying multiple things in different ways, or are we increasing the vision, or are we, we saying the same thing in parallel form, being together. So as we look at this, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. We already, we're thinking about the rest of our biblical theology, aren't we? We're thinking about already in, in Isaiah, in chapter 11, verse 4, the judgment that the, that the Messiah will bring is likened to um, him unsheathing a weapon. That he would, that the, his own rod, his own sword being unsheathed. So we've already seen this in Isaiah, in Isaiah with mind toward judgment. But this is speaking about the word of this servant, the constant word of the servant. He's not coming with the sword to overcome his enemies like Cyrus overcomes his enemies. He's coming with his, the truth of his own word. He is the word embodied, but he also is pictured as, as the word. We see this in Revelation, don't we? We've seen this several different times as we've looked ahead to Revelation in chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 19, verse 15. When he comes again, he's coming with a short, sharp sword out of his mouth because it is word. It is his word that does the slaying. It is his word that does the captivating. We learn in Hebrews that, that Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 that it's the word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? It is the word of God that is that. So this Messiah, this servant that's talked about in Isaiah 49 is coming. You can look right at your text and see it. Is coming. He is coming. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. Not just any sword, but a sharp sword. That one that is able to separate bone from marrow. It, it's, this, this is powerful, uh, his power being brought in his word. But he also says he's a polished arrow. What does that mean? Maybe a select arrow, your version says. So in this idea of an arrow or the shaft of an arrow, depending on what your version says there in, in, verse, in the third line of verse 2, that is a different kind of weapon, isn't it? The sword, I mean, there were two types of sword in the Greek world anyway. There were two types of for, swords, a long sword and a short sword. But those swords were personal combat, right? You were close to your person to do that. But with the arrow, you're pulling that bow back and that arrow flies. And this is not just any arrow. This is one that is that is is polished. It is all the edges are cut off. It's going to fly straight wherever the archer aims it. It will hit. It has distance. And I wonder if we're to see that message directly to the coastlands. It's not just close. It's not just Israel. But coastlands are being told to hear. Now we're going to find out why in a minute. But if we're just hearing this read to us, or we're hearing these words come, we're thinking, "Wow!" So this is going to be a sharp word. But this is going to be a word that is close and goes far. But look what it says about these spiritual weapons, these metaphoric weapons, the word. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me, and in his quiver, he hid me away. So he is a, is a sword hid in the shadow of his hand. He is an arrow hid away in his quiver. I think this tells us that it's always been the plan of God, but God has determined it will come at a specific and proper time. 
And when Jesus comes in the incarnation, he comes born of a virgin. He comes to the face of the earth as fully God, fully man to redeem his people through his perfect life and his perfect death and his resurrection and his ascension. That was only done in the fullness of time, Paul tells us in Galatians, right? There was a specific time. We could go through a lot about what that time meant. Even even at the time that Jesus came, the state of the roads, the state of communication and and different things that, that made that the fullness of time that even we as human beings can see that was the best time to send the son so until that time he was hidden so there was a plan that God had for this servant and it was from not it was even before his mother's womb because he was hidden with that hand plan until God Yahweh decided to reveal him look at verse 3 And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now that sets us back a little bit, doesn't it? How is the servant to be called Israel? What we have here is we have the Israel who should have succeeded but failed, contrasted with the Israel who will succeed and not fail. We have sinful Israel and we have the ideal or true Israel that is brought to us in in verse 3. I want you to turn back and remind yourself of two places. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. We've had children born since we've been in this verse, but... Look at verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but... It yielded wild grape, literally stinking things. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded stink fruit. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield stink fruit? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. Or I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste and it shall be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So verse 7 explains that parable of the vineyard for us, of their failure. God did everything that needed to be done in them, and they still chose disobedience. Turn to another passage. Turn to just a few chapters before where we are now, Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 18. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Remember, those words are plural, so we have a group of people. Who is blind, who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of Yahweh? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Yahweh was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted that are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not Yahweh? 
against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of his and the might of the battle, and he set on him and he set him on fire all around, but did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So that is physical Israel. That is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has chosen over and over and over and over to disobey their God. There is a remnant that he is working. We've seen this all through Isaiah. The remnant idea pops out every few chapters to remind us that God is working to, keep, to, to redeem a people for himself and bring them back to him because he has made this promise that there would be a Messiah come from, the, from Judah, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who would rightfully sit on the throne of David he's made that promise so he's working in that way but as a nation they have failed now this Israel is not one who has failed back in Isaiah chapter 49 he is not going to fail and he said to me you are my servant you notice Israel the nation was a servant multiple places now This is the perfect servant, Israel, the ideal or the true Israel, who will not fail, in whom I will be glorified. The nation I've not been glorified in. Now remember, that's how how the prophets have called God down and said, please forgive your people, remember? If you let these people go and these nations overtake them, it will bring shame to you. Why would you do it? That's what the psalmist in Psalm 88 cries out that we just sang. How can people in Sheol give you praise? So you need to come and you need to work. Vindicate your own name. And he says, I will be glorified in this servant, the true Israel, the, son, the one who will not fail. So here is the, the servant in this second servant song talking about his own calling, talking about how God has equipped him for his mission. We'll learn more about his mission next week. But he's also reminded us here that Yahweh is working in this servant to bring glory to himself as the true ideal Israel who will obey. Now we need to keep that in our mind as we move through. So Yahweh called me, the servant speaks in the first speech, he called me to be true Israel. But the second part of his speech, Yahweh is my justice and reward. I trust in him. Look at verse 4. But, now there's an adversative, right? So let's remind ourselves where we've come from in verse 3. What is it, what is it um, switching around here? He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Statement of fact from God himself, Yahweh himself. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Now that jars us, doesn't it? Did it jar you when you first read that? Did you look at that and you start saying, how can that be? If this is the Messiah, if this is Jesus, how can Jesus, who knows the plan of the Father, has been sent by the Father, who fully trusts in the Father, who fully is constantly obeying the Father, how can he say the words that occur in verse 4? I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And yet this is where the greatest encouragement in this passage comes to us as redeemed believers. Now, if you're not yet in Christ, if you, if you are still toying around with this idea of Jesus being the Messiah, the promised Messiah who came and lived and died and rose again and was ascended to the Father's right hand so that all who repent of their sins and believe in him will have eternal life, if you're still wondering whether that's true, there's a greater news for you. But if you're already in Christ, this is such encouragement to see that in Isaiah, we're told that the servant himself, now remember, what is the time frame that's in our mind because of verse one? And we're going to see it reiterated in verse five when we see the phrase, he formed me from the womb to be his servant. Our time frame that we're talking about is when he comes to the face of the earth to do the work. It's, it's when he is born of a virgin named Emmanuel. That's when we're talking about. This is in his, his fully God, fully man incarnation. And the Bible tells us that there were times that he was discouraged. And to see these words here in Isaiah, we automatically understand them. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that your work is in vain? 
Have you ever felt that your work, I mean, I, we could name for the next, I could make you miss your dinner tonight, not just your lunch, telling you all the ways that you and I have probably experienced that, that, that idea that everything we're doing is in vain. Maybe it's in your evangelism that you evangelize and, and you don't see any fruit coming from that evangelism. Maybe it's in your parenting. You're parenting your children. You're doing the best that you know how. You're teaching them the word of God. You're trying to discipline um, even-handedly and fairly and consistently. And yet you still have children who are giving problems that you're not sure how to understand. And you wonder whether all the work that you've done is in vain. And if they've grown up to be teenagers or beyond and they're doing things that, as, as the phrase goes, we didn't raise you to do that. And you may feel like your work is in vain. Maybe, maybe it is with, your, with, with the, the job that you have, that you have been doing your best in the job and you've been doing all the work that you can possibly do and you're, doing, you're, you're, you're taking offenses without saying anything and yet the people who are the loud mouth and brash and cheat the boss, they're the ones that get promoted. Maybe it's in your own personal fight with sin. Maybe you are fighting sin and you have that besetting sin, as the old theologians would say, and it is constantly there. It's constantly hammering. And every time you give into it, you think, all my work is in vain. It, it's, my labor is in vain. My strength is spent for nothing. It's all vanity. Need I go on? We can all feel that way. And we're at a turning point when we do, aren't we? Because if we give in to the discouragement, we make bad decisions. We make decisions that rebel against God and his word. We make decisions that bell, rebel against his character. That was the, the two singers that I brought earlier in the introduction. At every turn, I don't know about the younger one, but the Shanita O'Connor at every turn, if you went, I followed her life a little bit as she's gone, all, gone through her life. Um, she's a very talented singer, but at every turn when she's involved in some other thing that doesn't work right or brings, brings uh, scorn upon her, she begins to rebel again. And she'll rebel in different ways, divorce her husband, have another child, change her religion, change her name to something completely different, all so that she is in control because there was no bowing even though she professed at one point in her life to be a believer, there was no bowing to the king. And so all of her own work was vanity. It wasn't empowered by the spirit. So we are tempted with that. We are tempted with what do we do when we feel that way? And you might come from a background that says, I shouldn't even feel that way. Just feeling that way, that, that, just, be, that just shows that I don't trust the Lord. And I would say to you, that's not necessarily so. Our hearts should be broken when lost people don't come to Christ. Our hearts should be broken when our children disobey everything that we've taught them. We should be discouraged when, again, that same sin, we give into it because we do not apply the gospel to fight that sin. We should be brokenhearted. So what do we do with the brokenheartedness? You see, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you grasp that? In every way that you are going to be tempted to sin and have been tempted to sin, Jesus was there. And he's experienced it in an even greater level than you are going to experience because he is God. He is the sinless one. So the temptations are even stronger for him, and yet it says he's experienced that at all. And you say, but did he really experience discouragement? I would say, yes, he did. Listen to John chapter 12. This is right, such a strategic place that this is put. In John chapter 12, we have the Greeks who come, and they come to... Um, uh, Philip and Nathaniel, I think it's Philip and Nathaniel they come to, and one of them, they, they don't know what to do with the Greeks because they're there for the Jews. What do we do with the Greeks? And they're coming asking questions. So one goes to the other and they go to Jesus. And Jesus tells them his, this, his purpose. He tells them what's going on. But right after that section, right after the section in John anyway, where, where the, we first see the glimpse that he's there to save the world, we've seen it already in John, but now we're seeing it acted out. It's like the reality hits him of where he's headed, and he says these words, my soul is troubled. This is Jesus. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Tempted. Tempted to sin. Tempted to give up. He is troubled. His soul is troubled. And he says, do I just walk away from this? Is it, do I just say, Father, save me from this hour? He says no, because he brings his own word back to him. My purpose is this. This is why I was sent, is to accomplish this salvation. In Matthew chapter 23, in the lament over Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not... See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you think he said that with great joy or flippancy? He's burdened by this. He laments over their rejection, even as he tells them what's going to happen. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and he takes Peter, James, and John a little further with him and he says, you remain here and keep watch while I go over there by myself and pray. So when he does this, he goes away and prays, my soul is very sorrowful. No, this is what he, this is what he says. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Those are his words to Peter, James, and John. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he goes away by himself to pray, and he prays this. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but but what you will. His soul is in torment, sorrowful, even unto death. And he realizes that this is an option for him. I need to walk away. I can walk away from my calling. I can call down legions of angels and walk away. But he says, no, your will be done. Why? Because he is submitted. He reminds himself of the truth as he faces the sorrow, as he faces this extreme discouragement. Then he returns three different times to find the disciples sleeping rather than praying. And he says, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You have a desire to, but you're living by your flesh and you're giving in to the desires of your flesh. I need you to submit to the Spirit. He doesn't say that with great joy. He says that with burdensome sorrow. He's mocked by the authorities at his fake trials. He's mocked by the guards as he was flogged and prepared for the cross. He's mocked on the cross and as he hung on public display, he's mocked. He's forsaken by his Father, yet... For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus faced discouragement. In Isaiah chapter 49, we can see that discouragement both toward the Jews who have constantly, constantly, in in his speaking through Isaiah, in Isaiah 49, who have constantly turned away, who have constantly refused to obey. We can see that in the New Testament when he comes that all of the people who who were rejoicing at his suffering and rejoicing at his death and yet he stayed true to the word of his father. The prophecies that God gave those men in the Old Testament that will be carried forth. He stayed true to that. He combated the temptation to sin and give up and make bad decisions and quit obeying his father and not trust the word. He combated that with the very word of God the same way he did when he was tempted in the desert and he fended off Satan himself with the very words of God. First Peter chapter 2 verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He did that, not merely, but not excluding, being an example for us of how to fight the sin of discouragement 
how to fight the sin of thinking everything that we're doing in vain. And then we're promised as well in Hebrews chapter six, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That's the call to us. Jesus demonstrates it, but he also gives us the power to do it. So when we learn in chapter 49 that there was a time when uh, uh, the servant spoke through Isaiah, we have these words recorded, that he said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Look back at your text at 49. I know I've been out of Isaiah for a little bit now. 49 verse 4. Look at your text. Yet surely my right or my justice is with Yahweh and my recompense, my, my reward with my God. Do you see how he does that? He immediately turns from the temptation to sin <clears throat> just by confessing that he looks around and saying, what, is this? what good is this? And he immediately turns back to faith in his God and the word of God. And this is what we do every time. It's such an encouragement to us to be reminded that our Lord had these feelings. He had these feelings that, that, he was, that, that all of his work that he was doing was, was to no avail. He had these feelings that as he went through, he was discouraged about the work. He was discouraged about the reception. He was discouraged about what his disciples did. And yet he constantly and regularly always returned to the word of God. And that's our call as well. It is not wrong to be discouraged over sin. It is not wrong to think our work toward crucifying sin or raising our children or, or anything else that we're doing is in vain. It's wrong not to correct that thinking with the promises of God that said, he's in charge of that. He's the one who saves your children. He's the one who gives you the power to crucify sin. He's the one in control of your job. He's the one in control of your situation. And he's placed you there for his glory and he just asks you to be obedient, remember his promises, and apply his word. That's what Jesus did, and it's the, it's the example that we have before us, and it brings us much encouragement. Well, we need to move to verse 5. The servant says, Yahweh called me to be true Israel. Yahweh is my justice and reward. I trust in him. And then he says, Yahweh commissioned me first to bring... Jacob's remnant back to him. Look at verse 5. And now Yahweh says, I don't think we switch to the point where Yahweh is speaking. I think we still have the servant telling us what Yahweh has said. And now Yahweh says, and then he describes Yahweh again, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Okay, so we're reminded again of the time of the incarnation to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Now we might think, okay, so is this talking about the physical release from, from their captivity? Is this their physical release? And I don't think that it is. I think when we look to bring Jacob back to him, when you look up that word, the Hebrew word behind bring, it's used 10 times in Isaiah for, re, for turning to repentance, to bring back, to turn back. And I think that idea is supposed to be here as well. That his, his role, his calling, the one who formed him from his mother's womb, look at the connection. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to, so this is the purpose, this is the purpose for what he sent, it's the purpose that his name is made known, it is, it is the purpose that they are to listen, it is the purpose that he was called from the womb, for which he was called from the womb, to bring Jacob back to him back to him, to cause him to repent and return, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So this is an in-gathering of his people, and we've moved into the spiritual realm because we're talking about the incarnation of this servant when he comes to actually do the work. In Acts 3, verse 26, we read, God, having raised up his servant, and this is New Testament preaching that Peter is preaching, um, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, meaning the Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Do you see the mission? 
God sent the servant to turn you from your wickedness. There is that active engagement of God that when we turn away from sin unto salvation, we're turning away because God has impacted us in a way that we respond to his servant. It's the unconditional election we've seen all the way through Isaiah coming into fruition that God calls those who he intends to save. And this servant is sent to turn back Jacob and Israel be gathered to him. Look, look at your text again at the end of verse 5. For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. So there he is talking about himself again. My recompense is honor from Yahweh. My, my righteousness, my right, my justice, it's that God is my strength. I, it's not me. It's God working in me that the, that the promise comes that this is the mission that he has been sent on. But verse 6 says, he says, now we move to the words of Yahweh, not just the servant telling us about Yahweh and his relationship with the servant, but the servant conveying Yahweh's words. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. There again, those, those passive verbs. It is the servant who's raising them up. It is the servant who is preserving them. And God, Yahweh, through the servant, doing the preservation. And he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And all the coastlands who are called to listen from the very first verse, listen to me, O coastlands, all the coastlands now break out in song and joy. You hear them from all over the world standing up and shouting, shouting praises to this God who has said, it's too light of a thing, it's too small of a thing for me just to save a small people. My intention all along has been to save the world and to send you to be the salvation, to send you to be the one who is the light to the nations. This is not anything new for us. We've seen this same phrase in the first servant song in chapter 42 when we read, I am Yahweh, I have called you, speaking of his servant, called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. So we've already been told that this messianic servant will do this, and now we see the scope of this mission. The scope of this mission is broad, it is wide, it is to be that he will be a light to the nations. And this is what was cited in Acts chapter 13 that Josh read for us earlier. He's sent out to be a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach, and literally this is, that you may be my salvation. That's literally what the Hebrew says, that it's better if it's you, that you may be my salvation. That he is, he himself, this servant is the salvation. He not only brings it, but he brings it in himself because there is no salvation outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. There's no name on heaven or earth or anywhere else that anyone can be saved except through Jesus Christ. And that's who is being spoken of here. And the glory goes to him. We're seeing, we're seeing even more the, the end of verse 3. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That my beauty will be demonstrated through you. Remember, when Jesus comes, he is the exact representation of the Father's being, right? He comes and we see the Father because we see Jesus. And when Jesus comes, it says in John chapter 1 that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. So his mission is to all the nations of the world. It always has been. It's not something that just God changes his mind halfway through the work of Jesus. Well, the Jews aren't going to respond to him, so we'll go to the nations. It has always been his plan. We see that in the Psalms. We see that in the Old Testament over and over again, that his plan was for the nations to come to Israel, and they would, through Israel, be introduced to the righteousness of God in his perfect character, and they would learn how to walk. Remember Isaiah chapter 2. They would learn how to walk. They would come to the mountain so that his people could demonstrate to them what the Lord required of them. And they're failing in their task, so the one that is sent is the perfect servant, the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
Now, what do you say has that, you say, what does that have to do with us? Well, outside of the fact that it's the only reason you can claim to be saved, it's also the foundation of your mission, is it not? So let me first say to you, if you are here and you've not repented of your sin, the reason that this is, is told to us right here in Isaiah 49 is to begin to tell us, we see hints of the suffering of this servant, right? We see hints of it here. It's leading us to what's going to happen in the third and fourth servant song where we fully see the suffering of this servant and what it will take for you and I to be able to claim to be in Christ But the first step in this is for you to turn from your sin, repent of your sin, be the one that Christ is turning away from your sin unto himself through the power of the spirit and the preaching of his word and to bow before him and to give up all your rights and privileges, to give up all the things that you are doing that will get, that you think will get you to heaven, that you think will get you to a peaceful rest and to give all of those up and turn to Jesus. He is the one who lived the perfect life and died the perfect death, was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, that the only one who makes that possible for you. So today is the day of your salvation. If you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, today is the day to do that. Do not wait. But if you're in Christ, what does this have to do with us? Well, I hope you heard when Josh read that passage that Paul and Barnabas used that passage to justify their mission to the Gentiles. They quoted this passage, and they, they're not dismissing the fact that Jesus is the one who accomplished it. They're not dis, uh, dismissing the fact that this passage says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. They've just preached that Jesus. But they're also saying, that's our calling. That's our calling. Remember when we learned about the mission of the church, we learned that what, what the Holy Spirit is doing is carrying on the mission of Jesus through his church. That's what he's about doing on a regular basis. And we are plugged into that because we are the light of the world. Remember? You. Turn to, turn, let, me, let me remind you of a very famous passage that you know, but you need to see it with your own eyes in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaching Sermon on the Mount. Look what he says in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We, Jesus is the only light of the world, and yet him in us causes us to be lights in the world. We have the message of the gospel on our lips, and just like Paul and Barnabas used this passage to say they were sent out to the world, we feel the same, the same blessing and benefit that we are the ones to do that. It, it also ties right in, not only to, to Acts 13, but Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth, from where we are all the way across the world, we are to be involved in preaching this gospel because we are lights in the world. So do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged that you think your life doesn't match up. Do not be discouraged that no one is responding to your, to your evangelistic attempts. Do, do not be discouraged about the world that's around us. Do not think your work is in vain or your strength is equaling vanity. Don't think any of those things because God is the one working his will and his way through you and through the entire world. He is summing all things up in Jesus and he's given us the privilege to preach Jesus' name. 
to that lost and dying world. And this is the message that we hear right here in Isaiah 49. The people in, in Isaiah's day, the people in the exodus, or in the time being released from captivity, it's the same encouragement for them. It was encouragement to Paul and Barnabas, and it's encouragement to us. Be the people who call out to the valley of dead and dry bones around you to come to the light, to come to life, to come to the, to come to the preaching, to the Jesus Christ that you preach about to them. That's the encouragement of this passage. Do not be discouraged that your work is in vain. Trust your life, your situations, your evangelizing, your sin crucifying, your family raising, everything. Trust it to God for him to work his will and his way and give him the benefit that he thinks, the gift that he thinks, the reward that he thinks you deserve and the timing that he thinks you deserve it. Faithfulness. It is the faithfulness of God who will do it, and so it is our faithfulness to the faithful God that we see it bear fruit. He sends us into war, but the battle is already won. Is there a battle to fight? Yes. Is it won? Yes. So why would we not go? Father, we are grateful for your word and thankful for the truth, thankful to be encouraged and instructed from your word. Thank you that your word never changes, that it will not come back void. That Jesus, when he returns, he comes with a sharp sword from his mouth because his word will accomplish what you intended to accomplish. So we are grateful, Lord, to be able to bow before you and your spirit as we learn about the work of Christ. And we pray that you would strengthen us into that people that would be your army, that would constantly have our armor on, that we would be engaged in the war. Don't let us be the people who sit on the sidelines. And watch the war being fought. We ask you, Father, to send us in the battle with the equipping that you intend so that you can show forth your glory in that war. For we know the end because you've promised it to be so. So thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.